Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, I just got back from Memphis, Tennessee, where I had a great three days there. We had a two-day event. The first day was all about education, getting to know new things about things related to real estate and real estate investing and taxes and whatnot. Then we had a great networking event that evening where I got the opportunity to meet a lot of investors from all around. In fact, we had one person there from Australia. We had a couple there from Hawaii. And, you know, it was fun. These people are there to learn. And, you know, there are people who listen to this podcast. And it was just a lot of fun to meet people who listen to and from their drive to work. And it's great to put faces and names to people who are out there listening and educating themselves and learning to better their financial future and create financial freedom for themselves. So that first day was all about education. The evening was all networking. We got to sit around and have something to eat and have a few drinks and just overlook the Mississippi River. It was just a great time. And then the second day was all about a property tour. We got to go around the Memphis market, learn about various neighborhoods, get to see properties at different stages of the game, some being pre-renovation, some of them being in the middle of renovation, some of them having completed renovation. So it was an exciting event. And then we had, you know, some more networking after that. So it was great two, two and a half days of mingling and meeting other real estate investors. One of the things, you know, we got talking about there was taxes and taxation and whatnot. So the question comes up, why do people hate paying taxes? And one reason is because they just simply don't understand them. Albert Einstein said the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. You know, aside from that, we just simply don't like to pay any more than we have to. And, you know, some people feel that there's an obligation to pay. But at the same time, I think you have an obligation to learn how to reduce, minimize, or even eliminate the taxes that you pay when the opportunity is there. And the thing is, you may not know what opportunities exist because it's just a simple matter of honest ignorance. I always say that ignorance is expensive. But knowledge leads to increased wealth and the ability to lower your taxes. And if you don't, you would think that your tax advisor would be well-educated on this stuff. But that's just simply not the case, as you're going to learn today with my guest, Bruce Jones. So I had a great interview with Bruce, something that he's going to share with you. A few things, actually, are things that I've looked at in the past, but never quite completely grasped, because it's just what most financial planners and advisors don't really know or understand. So this is a great episode, and there's some stuff that we're going to talk about today that might go over your head. Don't let that get you lost just because we're getting deep in the weeds. You could always go back and listen to this episode over again, or better yet, you can just contact Bruce and his team and learn more about it. It's just free education. So with that, we'll be back in 30 seconds. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. 
It's my pleasure to bring Bruce Jones onto the show. Bruce is the president of Tax Wealth, a tax analysis and solutions research company, which for 23 years has served owners of real estate and privately held businesses. Bruce himself entered the financial services industry in 1970 and has taught the subjects of tax management and financial strategy planning since 1974. He's also a contributing editor to real estate and other industry publications and speaks extensively on tax planning issues at public and trade association forums. Bruce is very effective in helping to reduce, defer, or even eliminate income taxes and solve the capital gains and other tax concerns that are triggered when investment property is to be sold. So Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Glad having you on. Bruce, you have an interesting background and you're so deep into tax, tax strategy, and tax planning. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this. Well, I've been in business now for 47 years, sort of dates me. And I, as you just pointed out, I got involved in financial planning and tax mitigation planning way back in 19, late 73, and then moving forward from then on. But it's a passion I have. I was in the financial planning industry for 41 years, retired from that three years ago, and decided I wanted to live longer because I know the statistics about people retiring and losing purpose and then dying. So I got very selfish very quickly and decided what I wanted to live longer. And I kept my tax planning company, which is Tax Wealth. So our focus is strictly on mitigation of income tax taxes and capital gains taxes when folks are selling their, their capital assets, like real estate, for example. So it's something that I have a passion for and I've done for quite some time. It's great that you want to share that wealth of information with people to help them in their finances and their wealth planning. So this is great. And this is what this show is about, is sharing this information with people to help educate them. The U.S. tax code, as big as it is, is probably nearing 80,000 pages right now. I think it's confusing for most people, and it probably leaves a lot of people paying more in taxes than they should. And nobody really likes to pay taxes. They do it because they're obligated to. It's They really don't have a choice. So This is especially true when it comes to more sophisticated income and capital gain situations. I'd like to ask you, what is your philosophy when it comes to tax planning and tax strategy? Well, first of all, I would disagree with the statement you just made that they're obligated to pay it. The obligation only comes when you don't know what's available. Okay. And that's the very reason we're on this conversation today is to inform your listeners that there are options in there that they are probably not aware of in the 70, as you're right, close to 80,000 pages now probably in the tax codes today. There is so much there that's available that folks are not aware that is available to them that they can tap into, eliminate, reduce, or defer taxes. The problem is, is that they rely upon the, the accountants of the world to try to direct them toward that. And the fact is that the CPAs and the enrolled agents and the accountants of the world, most of them, are not trained in tax planning. So they really don't know how to do it. They don't know how to delve into tax law to find solutions. They're very good at uncovering tax problems, but they're very ill-equipped in how to solve them. So that's what we do. We're proactively trained in how to delve into tax law. And what we endeavor to do is to collaborate with the client's accountant or CPA have and develop a synergistic, cohesive team that works together for the favor of that client. Now, in regards to taxes themselves, I do a lot of mitigation of income taxes for the self-employed and business owner and real estate owners as well with the larger portfolios because that's what opens up a lot of opportunity in law to find ways of being able to mitigate taxes. But the fact is, is that there's a lot there 
that can be looked at and can be where the taxes that have been paid and are probably do not need to be paid can be identified and then the taxpayer can be shown how to lawfully be able to retain those monies rather than give it needlessly to the government. Right. I've heard it said that most of the tax code talks about ways to defer or avoid or reduce how to pay your taxes as opposed to what should be paid. So understanding what's in there is to your advantage to reduce what you're required to pay. Would, would you say that's true? Very true. In fact, let me tell you a true story. Bill Gates, we all know who he is. When he made it big at the very forefront of his career with Microsoft, he was interviewed by some reporter. And the question he was posed was, Mr. Gates, what would be the one piece of advice that you could give that would really help others gain somewhat the type of success that you're now enjoying? And one would think that he would have responded something along the lines of, well, learn about this tech situation or that tech situation, and you'll be in great shape. His answer was having a working knowledge of the tax codes. Hmm. And I think that speaks volumes, and I think he's absolutely correct. If a person will take the time to start learning what is available within the scope of their own situation, they will find in most situations that there is a lot there that they can take advantage of. They just need to mine it out. And the CPAs and the accountants of the world are not trained to do that. What they do, they, I refer to them as financial historians. And that's not a slam on them at all. It's just what they do. They take information that is historic in nature, things that people have already done after the fact, and they filter through the laws that they need to filter through to come up with an accurate tax return. And that's great, but that's accounting. It's not tax planning. Right. So it's very important that these folks seek out somebody who is trained in proactive tax planning so that they can really take advantage of, of those skills and uncover what is in tax law that they can take advantage of and thereby lower their taxes. Do you think it's more of the responsibility of the CPA, tax planner, or EA, or is it more of a responsibility that is on the shoulders of the investor or business owner? It's absolutely on the business owner or the investor. Okay. Because when they talk or they hire a CPA or they hire an accountant, they're hiring them to do their, their books and they're hiring them to do their tax returns. So those professionals are doing exactly what they're hired for, but they weren't hired necessarily to do tax planning, were they? Right. And they're so professionals. They so we rely on what they say as it's, if it's gospel. But I have I like to say to people often that you don't know what you don't know. And so if you're not aware that there are other strategies and techniques out there, then you don't question your tax professional as to what they do know and what they don't know because you don't know what to ask. And so education like this helps to expose the other options that are out there. So when you do talk to your tax professional, at least you can ask them what those possibilities are. And if they're clueless, then maybe you should find another tax strategist. Well, certainly find somebody who would be more open to exploring what can be done. Sure. But there, most of them are very ill-equipped in how to solve taxes, although they're able to unveil tax problems. They just don't know how to solve them. If, if you were to go to a CPA generally, and you know that you want to sell a piece of property, and you ask them for their advice as far as, well, how can I solve the taxes I'm going to pay? Here's what is usually heard. Well, do you really want to do that? It might be safer, I'll put the word safer in quotes, just to pay the taxes. No, I don't want to pay the taxes. Okay, well, then you can do a 1031 exchange. Yeah, I know that, but really right now, I'd rather be out of real estate. 
okay, well, if you don't want to pay the taxes, you don't want to do an exchange, well, then you can do seller property and take back paper, do seller carry back financing and defer the taxes that way. No, no, I don't really want to rely upon somebody to, to make me payments. They may, may not be able to continue in that. Okay, well, if you don't want to pay the taxes, you don't want to do an exchange, you don't want to do seller carry back financing, well, about all you can do is keep it in your portfolio, then die. And there's a step up in basis under current law to the value at the time of the property, at the time of your passing. And if your heirs sell for that value, well, they're not going to pay any taxes. Not a great choice for the property owner, is it? No. To die. But you see, that's all they hear, if they hear all three. But there is so much more. There are ways of being able to eliminate taxes if, if it's a proper fit. Certainly, there are ways of reducing it, and absolutely, there's ways of deferring it. And when you're talking about deferring taxes, you want to defer them as far in the future as you can to take time, value of time, value of money. Take advantage of that, because now, now you have full use of what would have been the tax dollars for the year, year of sale that you don't have to pay, that you can turn around and invest. That's right. And use those dollars to grow to ultimately pay the taxes sometime down the road. You mentioned a 1031 exchange. Most people know about the 1031 exchange. We hear it a lot and we have clients that are in a 1031 now or they've just recently finished one. And the 1031 basically allows an investor to sell a property and then reinvest the proceeds in new properties while deferring all the capital gains taxes. But your company has come up with something that you've labeled or branded a specialized asset sale. I'd like to start off by you telling us or defining what a specialized asset sale is because this leads into a conversation about the benefits of it and how it compares to a 1031, which I don't want you to get into just yet. Okay. Well, a specialized asset sale is coupling two different things together in law. We're coupling a monetized loan together with a specific type of installment contract that the law tells us that we can defer the taxes for a very lengthy period. Installment reporting came into law in 1918, 99 years ago. Nothing new at all. At the time that they installed that law, they added into the law the term dealer. A dealer, by definition, is simply an intermediate buyer. So we're utilizing this intermediate buyer, a dealer, as part of this transaction. So essentially what is occurring is that the once the transaction is between the actual buyer and the seller, is consummated as far as the sale agreement and they're in escrow. Then the dealer is invited in as an intermediate buyer. The seller sells the property to the dealer in a specific way and defers all the taxes for three decades. And what they're receiving at close of escrow are not the sale proceeds. And that's very important because if they receive the sale proceeds, they'll have what's called constructive receipt of those sale proceeds, which means they're going to be taxed for that tax year. What they're receiving instead is a special type of loan. Now, loans for investments, loans for businesses is very commonplace, as are installment sales. So all we're doing is coupling the two. So the seller of the asset, and we're able to demonstrate to the seller and their attorney and their CPA how to structure the transaction in such a way to where they can sell the asset utilizing a specific type of installment contract that allows them to defer the taxes for a very lengthy period of time and instead of receiving sale proceeds, which would be taxable, they're receiving loan proceeds, which by law are not taxable. That's all we're doing. It's nothing untried, actually. It's nothing. It's just not well known. Mm-hmm. But it's been it's seated in law for 99 years and then actually fortified by the IRS in 1980 when they 
codified into law the ability to monetize installment contracts without losing tax deferral, and then re-fortified by the chief counsel of the IRS himself in 2012 when he issued a memorandum in favor of coupling a monetized loan with an installment sale contract. So for those that don't know, an installment sale is essentially when you have a sale and you have partial repayment of the capital gains. Is that a good way to define it? Let's define it as it is in law, because it's probably the shortest or most succinct definition of a law there is in law. It simply says one or more payments is made to the seller after close of escrow. That's it. It doesn't say how much it has to be or how little. It doesn't say how long that contract must be or how short. It just simply says that one or more payments is made to the seller after close of escrow. Well, the one payment made after close of escrow with this particular planning approach comes decades later but as well within law. Okay, so I'm a very visual person and we're recording this. It's an audio podcast. I like to visualize things in my mind and I don't know if this is hard to do, but are you able to explain or articulate a way for me to visualize and for our listeners to visualize what that looks like at a 30,000 foot level? Yeah, it's a little difficult because this is a bit sophisticated, but let's give it a, give it a good try. Give it a shot. You give it a shot. All right, imagine a box to your left and call that seller and then a box to the further right, and that's your calling the final buyer. Okay. And then in between, well, before we get to that, you as seller and the buyer now have found each other. You've negotiated price for the sale. Let's say it's a million one hundred thousand dollars. Use that as the example. Okay. And now you're in escrow. Well, while in escrow, you put in a box between you as seller and the buyer, and call that a dealer. That's the intermediate buyer which law says their function is to buy the asset to immediately resell it. They cannot buy and hold for long-term investment purposes. So visually, put an arrow from the seller to the dealer, to that middle box, and you're selling that asset to the intermediate buyer on an interest-only installment sale contract, non-amortized for an extended period of time. At close of escrow, it's the dealer that sells the actual property to the buyer whom you found for the exact same amount of sale price and all the terms that were negotiated. No different. But because you sold property to the dealer on an installment sale contract, in the terms of that contract, you now have deferred the taxes for decades by law. While in escrow, below what you just wrote out or visualized, set another box called a lender, a private lender, and then arrow going to the right to another box, which is you, the seller. And that lender will then loan you a specific type of loan that will provide you a near equivalent amount of sale proceeds at close of escrow. The import of that is that tax law says that you do not pay taxes on borrowed funds. It's as simple as that. It's no different than, for example, if I refinance my home mortgage and I would drew equity out of my home. I'm not going to pay taxes on it because they're borrowed money, not until I sell the property. It's no different than that. So that's what you receive at close of escrow. Now, the, through that structure, then, you're deferring the taxes for a very lengthy period of time, yet at close of escrow, you're receiving loan proceeds, which by law are non-taxable, that will be near equivalent to the sale price that you sold that asset for. Now, the key to all of this are not the benefits to the seller. I mean, they're really good, without a doubt, but the whole driving force on this planning approach is actually the lender relationship. You know, I won't go into deep detail on this at all at this point, but the reason that the lender is so important is because that loan is completely uncollateralized. There are no liens imposed on the borrowed funds, and there's no liens imposed on any of the personal assets of the borrower. None. 
So when those funds are received by the seller at close of escrow as borrowed funds, there's no taxes, and they have full control as to where they want to invest those funds under their total discretion with no liens against it and no restrictions whatsoever. So the amount that they're going to get will be for more than what they would have netted out after paying the, or selling the property, paying the cost of sale, paying any debt, and then paying the taxes and netting the rest. So they're well ahead of the game there, aren't they? Wow. So the way that the... Uh, go ahead. Well, I, no, finish your thought. I have a question about where the funds go or who's holding it, but finish your thought. Okay. Well, the, the other thought of is that, and again, I won't go into detail, but structurally, there's a way that is mandated by the lender as far as payment of the interest on the loan and ultimately the payoff of its principal. And we'll just leave it with the fact that the it's all done automatically. And the, the borrower, the seller borrower, for the interest on that loan or the payoff of the principal. It's all done automatically. And essentially what is happening is that the interest earned on the installment contract is what is used to pay the interest on the loan over that parole period. So for those people listening, this actually sounds more complicated than it actually is. I'm sure if you were to digest this for a bit and maybe see some visual layout of it, it's not that complicated. One question I have, though, is when this transaction happens, are the funds being held by some intermediary like you would see with a 1031 exchange, or are the funds actually going back to the hands of the seller? No, the seller has sold the property to the dealer on an installment sale contract. Uh-huh. It's just that isn't paid off until the end of the time frame that uh, was negotiated, which is decades later. And that is actually what is used to pay off the loan at the end of that time frame. In the interim, they've got all the monies on the loan to invest however they choose for growth and income and whatever purposes right. they're building wealth on. The sale proceeds go to the dealer because he bought the property, didn't he? Right. The installment contract. So the dealer's holding those funds and... They get direction on where to invest those funds by the seller? No, by the lender. Because the lender has a proprietary way as to how they want the funds invested in the market over the term of the loan. And the dealer simply complies with that criteria. And it's really interesting because if you look into historically the U.S. domestic stock market over an extended period of time, you'll find that the market has never done less the 9 to 10% as a yield over that time frame. And we're talking typically three decades. So that's one of the reasons why the loan is for that long of a period as, as is the installment contract, because that's where the funds are invested in the market. And that's the time frame that the market has always done its very best as far as the yield. So the lender is very confident that the dealer will have more than sufficient funds at the end of that time frame to pay off the installment contract, with the, which are the very amounts used to pay off the loan at that time automatically. Okay. So what type of assets can this be applied to? Obviously real estate, but what else can you use it for? Anything other than listed securities being sold through a public exchange. And the reason for that is that installment reporting rules do not allow installment reporting for those types of transactions. So if you wanted to sell AT&T or Apple stock or anything that's listed on a public exchange, we cannot use this for that to solve the tax issues. However, if it's sold privately apart from an exchange, yes, we can do that. But I've been involved in transactions on airplanes, collectibles, art collections, real estate of all kinds, not only investment real estate, but also personal residences and businesses of all kinds. The minimum size transaction on this must be at least 500000 There is no maximum. Currently, I'm involved in transactions ranging from a low of about 660000 using this plan approach and the largest one is for $250 million on, the, on the sale of a business. Wow. There's a lot of deferred capital gains there. Well, there will be. But same components to the transaction, 
identical to all of them. It's just different numbers that's being accommodated. So this is applicable to anybody who has assets to sell or reinvest that wants to defer capital gains taxes on those assets. They want to defer the capital gains taxes on the sale of those assets. Yes, it's something worthy, more than worthy to at least explore. Understand something very, very important, and that is there is no cure-all in tax planning. It does not exist. This is not a cure-all either, but it is in the 47 years that I've been in business, the best thing that I have ever encountered in regards to deferring taxes and giving the best possible outcome for the seller at close of escrow. But it too is not a cure-all. There are certain situations on sales of assets, especially in businesses, where it doesn't accommodate it. For example, I'm involved in the sale of three businesses right now for the, by the same seller. Combined sale price is $56 million. And he has a lot of capital equipment that has been depreciated that he's selling. Well, all that depreciation recapture and that capital equipment is not solved using this deferral approach. It doesn't accommodate it. So what we're doing is to pair out the sale of that capital equipment and selling it to the same buyer in a different way and solving the tax concerns that way. And the rest of the sale of the three businesses are being done through this uh, deferral approach. So the, the net effect for the client by doing that if he didn't do proper planning on the sale of all three businesses on a $56 million combined sale, he would actually net after payment of debt, payment of cost of sale, and payment of all the taxes, he would net out roughly about $7 million. In contrast to that, by marrying basically two different planning approaches to solve the tax issues, at close of escrow, he's going to end up with a little more than $30 million tax-free at close of escrow. Wow, that's a huge difference from $7 million to $30 million. It is, but all it is is application of law. Sure. But you have to identify what the real problems are first and then delve into law to find the right solutions that fit those concerns. Right. The one thing you never want to do is try to fit somebody into a given mode or any given planning strategy. Right. You always want to find out what the real need is, what the real concerns are, what the components are of those concerns, and then find the right solutions to fit those and thereby give the best possible outcome for the client at close of escrow. I agree. I love this vehicle or tool, and I want to say it's very creative, but at the same time, it's not. It's just applying what's already there in a better way. Yeah, and the very first one actually was done 22 years ago in the 1995 tax year. And what occurred was a gentleman had sold a bunch of timber property in the Pacific Northwest on a traditional installment sale basis, which is seller carryback financing. And he actually was really happy with the transaction until he got a call from the buyer telling him that they've decided to pay him off early. Well, that he didn't like because that meant that all the deferred gain was then doing the 95 tax year with all the taxes with it. So they reached out to our dealer who then was functioning as an attorney who specialized in business and real estate transactions with an emphasis in tax law treatment and economics. He's a Harvard Law School graduate, admitted to the bar in 1967, and until he transitioned his consulting business into that of becoming a full-time dealer about 12, 13 years ago, that's all he did was solve major tax issues for investment property owners and business owners. And so he reviewed all the agreements and verified that the buyer had every right to prepay if they chose to. And as a solution, he crafted the very first one of these types of transactions. That same program is in effect today, 22 years later for the same client. So they're now 22 years into the deferral period, which in their case is for three decades, and it's never been challenged by the IRS. 
A lot of our listeners are probably thinking about a 1031 exchange. They're familiar with it. They know about it. Maybe they're in one or or they're planning to use one. So a glaring question to me is, what are the benefits of this specialized asset sale over a 1031 exchange? Well, let's first of all understand what a 1031 exchange is. It is a replacement strategy. It is not an exit strategy. If a person, for example, wanted to sell their property, solve the tax issues, and park the money, and wait until they find a property that is worthy of purchase, and it's somewhat challenging in today's market to find a reasonable uplink property. Now, I, th- I think you're an exception with what we've talked about in the past as far as the well of uh, product that is available to your sources, and, and I applaud you for that. But it's been re- reported to me by a lot of different commercial real estate brokers whom I support throughout the country that right now about 50% of the exchanges fail today in today's market for a variety of reasons. Perhaps the, the clients just couldn't find a reasonable uplay within the 45-day declaration rule, or perhaps for whatever reason they would be able to close the properties on escrow at, at the 108, by the 180th day. Whatever the reason, there's a problem out there. But it is a replacement strategy. It forces the client or the seller to buy more real estate. They have to identify within 45 days after close of escrow on what they relinquished. They have to carry over all the debt into the new property. They have to carry over their adjusted basis into the new property, which means if they've owned property that they sold for a long time, they're down to maybe even land value after depreciating it fully or certainly lowering the net adjusted basis, and that's the basis on the uplink property that they have to base their depreciation on. So they're getting less in depreciation benefits on the new property they're buying through an exchange than if they bought it outright apart from an exchange. Right. All right. So those are some challenges. Well, in contrast, there is no 45-day declaration rule with this plan approach. There is no 180-day rule. If they use this to further taxes, they can take the very same monies and buy the same property they would have bought through the exchange and now have a complete reset on the depreciation benefits on that new property that they were going to buy anyway. Plus, they can diversify out. Plus, they can keep some of the monies if they need the monies. With a 1031 exchange, you can't do that because if you would held back any monies out of that transaction on a 1031 exchange, they'll call that boot, and that's going to be taxable. Not with this. So they can actually diversify out with more properties if they choose to than what they could do through an exchange. And they simply have more flexibility. Yeah, I'm just thinking of some clients right now that we're involved with and have recently been involved with where they were down to the wire on their 45-day identification period. They had literally eight or nine days left to identify because they fell out of escrow on a previous contract. And then we had some people who were down to the last few days on that six-month closing period and they just made it, but it was literally on the last day. And so those are very stressful situations for real estate investors that are moving from their sold properties to their new properties. Mm-hmm. And this, this eliminates yeah, it, that. It does. I find it very interesting that by law, when a 1031 exchange fails, it automatically becomes an installment sale by law. So it's not difficult at all to be able to transition from a 1031 exchange into this planning approach and still defer all the taxes, but give them a much better outcome at close of escrow than they certainly would have if they couldn't identify within 45 days or close within 180-day rule that they have through the exchange. But you need a 
cooperative accommodator to do this. And a lot of accommodators out there are simply not accommodating, (laughs) not to be punished about it, but they just won't do it because they don't understand this. So So, unfortunately, I have some accommodators who do understand and they are cooperative. So does does that have to be done in the first 45 days or can it be done within the six-month period with a 1031? It can be done within the six-month period. Okay. I've got three cases right now that we put purposely into a 1031 exchange with the cooperative accommodator so that they could actually put in quotes by the time that is needed to be able to do this other. We need at least two weeks before close of escrow to be able to do this. And that's only so that all the proper documentation can be drafted, everything gotten to the client so they can review it and their attorney can review it. We want their attorney involved. We want their CPA involved in this. And they need to be involved, but we need a reasonable time frame so that they could have the ability to review all these documents without being rushed, so that they can indeed see that this is real, that it is supported by law, so that they can do the proper due diligence that they should do on behalf of their client. So the reason these three are now in escrow is because I was called a a week before escrow was to close, and we simply didn't have enough time. Mm -hmm. So we put it into a 1031 exchange with the intent that after they do the proper review of of the documents, and they see that it is exactly what they expect it to be, and then they sign those documents at that time, then we can transition it to this planning approach from the 1031 exchange. Right. As I said, it does require a cooperative accommodator. I had a case a month ago, a $14 million transaction by a lady who could not close her, well, it's October 15th, is her 180th day, and she will not be able to make it. And she wanted to do this deferral approach, but her accommodator would not cooperate. So she is going to be sent the monies on the 181st day, and she will pay taxes on it. And as a result of the non-cooperative attitude that the accommodator has, she's going to pay nearly $2 million in taxes that she does not have to pay. Wow. That's pretty unfortunate. So it is better, but it's, better to avoid it if you can right from the beginning. It's much better to know what your options are before you even enter an exchange. Hence the reason we're talking today. So what are the dangers then of the 1031? I know that's kind of a strong question and it's a, it's assumptive too, but can you talk about some dangers that are involved with a 1031? Well, it's not so much that there's danger because the 1031 exchange rules have been around since the Starker decision in the late 1970s. So, I mean, they're very well established, but the so-called danger is, well, what happens if you're you passed a 45-day declaration rule, you've identified property, and for some reason it falls out. What if the seller decides to change her mind and gets finds a loophole and decides not to sell the property? Well, you're past a 45-day rule. You can't do anything. You know, really, that's more of the concern that I have is the inflexibility that one has with a 1031 exchange. Yeah, that's a big factor is the lack of flexibility and control. This specialized asset sale provides more flexibility by the sounds of it, greater control, strong tax benefits. 1031 sounds more rigid and somewhat arbitrary. Well, it is rigid. And that's just the way it was constructed. So you follow what the rules say, and that's what you have to do. Well, with this other, we're following different rules. And it just gives more flexibility for the seller of the asset to be able to still accomplish deferral, but give them more flexibility and actually access to cash that they would not have otherwise. So when I first came across this, I thought it was interesting, and I kind of glazed over it because I didn't understand it in my first pass with it. And now that I'm coming back to it, it's becoming a lot more clear and it makes a lot of sense. But I'm still kind of baffled why 
CPAs and tax attorneys don't understand this? Like why it's not so much more widespread? Why is that? Actually, it's very simple. Until I found out about it nine and a half years ago, as did literally a handful of other financial advisors that I am aware of. And each of us were able to orchestrate a relationship with the attorney who who had crafted this and did it for his clients so that we could do it for our clients when it was appropriate. He only did it for his own clients. He wasn't out marketing this at all. It didn't gain any kind of national attention until three years ago this month after I introduced it to a group of proactively trained tax advisors, including CPAs, enrolled agents, as well as other proactively trained financial advisors like myself, and I'm part of that group. And after they did a very extensive due diligence process on this, they welcomed it. And we introduced this in a webinar to 172 CPAs, enrolled agents, and other proactively trained financial advisors. And I'm the person responsible for supporting them all nationally on that planning approach. And when they learned about that, believe me, I got inundated by phone calls and emails from these folks who had been on the webinar wanting to know how can they apply this for their own clients. So I've had the very wonderful experience for the last three years of supporting these folks. And we, I'm on the phone almost every day talking to some attorney or some CPA or a client themselves or their financial advisors with them about that planning approach. And I get to teach and I get to share how it works and the structure of it. And we do the projections on their given property to make sure it's a fit. Number one, we do that at, at the forefront as much as we can. And so we just craft it out and move it in a very step-by-step process where the client's always in control, never push, never conjole, never try to sell. We just inform. Mm-hmm. And then we go from there. But I was speaking to dealer about that very topic. You know, how many advisors nationally know about this? I was talking to him about, oh, about two months ago. And it's his best guess that we probably have less than 500 advisors in the entire country that is even aware of this. Wow. Now, that doesn't make it any less lawful. It just is not that well known. Compare that to a 1031 exchange. Well, (laughs) again, that came into existence in the late 70s. It took a while to get traction, but it's certainly well-seated in law now and very, very well known. If you compare the amount of volume that has been done with the exchange as opposed to this planning approach, this planning approach is probably a couple of billion dollars short of what the exchanges have done through the years. Oh, yeah. So it's just not well known but it is gaining traction. And this is one of the reasons that there's two concerns that almost always pop up and you already voiced one of them. And that is, why isn't everybody doing this? Well, I just explained that. The other one is, gee, this sounds too good to be true. Therefore, as the old adage says, it must be too good to be true. Right. Well, I understand that sentiment. However, wouldn't you agree that the best antidote to that is education? which is the very reason we're talking this afternoon. And that's why I wanted you on this show. And at the same time, I like to tell investors often, especially when I'm in a group environment, and I've said it on this show many times, that ignorance is expensive. And what you don't know is costing you money. I think the greatest enemy there is in, in tax planning is the lack of knowledge about what's available. So I concur with what you're just saying. So it's a matter of being proactive. First, an attitude to be willing to be proactive, to to work with somebody who is trained in how to find these things in law and how to appropriately accommodate the need. Yeah. That's really what it boils down to. So everything we just said here in the last minute just kind of segues to my last question, and that is, you know, with tax planning and tax strategy, it's really something that most people spend very little time on. In fact, most people probably spend no time on it. So what last comment would you have or what else would you like to share related to reducing or saving taxes? Okay. Let's 
talk about folks who have an existing portfolio of properties. There is a law that has been around since January 1st of 1987 that, surprisingly to me, and has been for many years since I learned about it, which was gosh, close to 20 years ago, and I've been applying it for my own clients appropriately. For those who have one or more investment properties that has improved, like single-family residences, apartment buildings, duplexes, fiveplexes, fourplexes, commercial properties, whatever it might be, this law allows them to recharacterize certain components that are tied to the property and change the type of depreciation that they take on it. Now, for apartments and single-family rentals and that type of property, you have a 27-and-a-half-year depreciation schedule, what's called straight-line depreciation. For commercial, it's 39 years. But what this law does is allow them to recharacterize certain components that are tied to the property and subcompartmentalize them to such a degree that they can now accelerate that depreciation level from 27-and-a-half years or 39 years to 5, 7, or 15 years. And what that does, Marco, it gives them an instant increase of cash flow tax-free that they can turn around, and if they choose to, buy more real estate with. So they may have a whole lot of money in tax savings that they're not aware of that they can actually turn around and use for whatever purpose that they want. There's no restriction, but it is a source that they can use to actually buy more properties and put put that money as down payments and expand their portfolio. Let me give you an example. If you look at when you're evaluating a piece of real estate, for example, in, as a possible purchase, you're looking at all sorts of different aspects of that property. You're looking at condition, location, rent rolls, history on rents, when could you possibly increase the rents, age of property, you know, all sorts of different things. And you'll probably put that on a spreadsheet, project it out, and based upon all that information, you're going to make a value judgment as to whether or not you want to buy the property. So if A, B, and C happens, oh, it's going to be a great investment. Or if D, E, and F happens, eh, it can still be pretty good. Or G, if G, H, and I happens, oh, it could be horrible. But based upon that information, you're going to make a decision to buy the property. And you might slap down 10000 hundreds of thousands of dollars as a down payment and leverage the rest on the purchase. And now you own the property. Well, wouldn't you agree that that decision is based upon pure conjecture? It's what ifs. What if that happens? What if this happens? Everything I do is based on written law. So let's look at ROI, because that's what real estate's all about, return on investment. Well, what I would suggest you do and your listeners do is look at tax planning as an investment. And the cost to do that planning is your investment and the yield on that investment or the return on that investment or the tax benefits that you receive. So let me give you an actual example using this planning approach that I brought up. I've done a lot of writing on real estate and tax planning through the years. I've been published a fair amount. And I got a call from a young gal, uh, early 40s, married, husband's a truck driver. She runs a daycare center out of her home. Uh, gross income combined $175,000 a year. So they're doing fine, but they have very little write-off. And she called me the day after she wrote a $40,000 check to the IRS for taxes. And you can imagine she wasn't very happy about that. So she reached out to me. She said, well, what can I do to mitigate these taxes killing us? I said, I have absolutely no idea. Send me your tax returns. Let me review them. Let me see what I might be able to discover for you. So she did. And I'm reviewing the tax returns, and I came to Schedule E. Discovered they have six small unit investment properties, as large as being a fiveplex. Well, immediately I knew they were candidates for this law. So fortunately, all the information that I needed to run a forecast with the experts in an area that I have was there. 
in what she had sent me, and they did the forecast. Well, four of those six properties were prime candidates for this law. So when I actually met them for the first time, two weeks later, I had something of substance to talk to them about, and they ended up doing it. Now, the IRS recognizes this law as just that, law. And you say, absolutely, we know it's law, but the IRS says in order for you to apply that law, we do require that you do a formal study done by experts in that area of law preferably with an engineering background, which pretty much wipes out your CPAs of the world and counsel of the world because they don't have an engineering background. But to do a formal study on the properties you want to apply that law to, and as long as they comply with our regulations, you'll never hear from us. Well, in their case, that cost to do the study or their investment was $13,000 on those four properties to do that study. But that's deductible. When you factor in their tax brackets, their hard dollar cost or investment to do the study net after the tax savings on that deduction was $9,000. So what did they get as a return on that $9,000 investment? Well, the first thing that we were able to do was to amend their previous year's tax return, and we got $16,000 of the 40 that they paid back plus interest within 30 days of the IRS, or from the IRS. That's about a 78% return on investment. Not bad. But in addition to that, we got another $86,000 of tax deductions. So combined, the two is about a hundred and $2,000, as I recall, in total tax deductions, giving them in their bracket, state and federal, somewhere around the fifty dollars to $60,000 tax savings. So let's say it's 60000 on a $9,000 investment. Now you're talking about nearly 600% return on your investment, guaranteed because it's law and with no risk because it's law, not conjecture. So when you view tax planning, it risk should be really viewed as an investment far more than just an exercise in trying to reduce taxes. Right. I agree. Reducing your taxes is the fastest way to give yourself a raise. Without a doubt. And it's 100% return on investment because for every dollar that you reduce in taxes, that's a dollar more in your pocket tax-free, isn't it? Exactly. It's a tax-free raise. Yeah. So the scenario you just outlined, how small of a portfolio could an investor have where it would make sense to invest in that sort of strategy? Generally, this is just a general rule of thumb. Uh But I would say if the property is at purchase, not value, current value, but purchase price is around the $300,000 to $400,000 mark, then they're probably a candidate. Now, having said that, if there's a portfolio of properties and the purchase prices were less than that, we can look at it in the aggregate. We can take all the properties, combine the purchase prices, and they're probably candidates from the aggregate viewpoint. Of the same amount, 300000 Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that covers a lot of people. No, it can. And the benefits can be very, very good for them. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing, too, at least in, I'm in a position of being able to have the forecast run at no cost. So we can find out what the benefits would be if they were to be able to implement this law and what the cost would be for the experts to do their job in doing the formal studies required by the IRS to comply with the regulations so that they can affect these laws. And then the client can weigh the benefits against the cost to do it to see if it's worthwhile. If they don't think it's worthwhile, it doesn't cost them a penny. Right. Bruce, we've had a lot of information in this episode. This is extremely valuable to a lot of people. And I know that there are going to be a number of people that are going to reach out to you because they want to save going forward, or maybe they can save today retroactively on investments that they've made. So 
Do me a favor, tell our listeners how they can find you and or where they can get more information about you and what you do. Well, I very much appreciate that. I would encourage them, and the phone number is 949-627-8724, and they can go to the website capitalgainstaxplan.com. Capitalgainstaxplan.com. .com. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Very good. Well, Bruce, I really appreciate you taking an hour or so of your time here today. This has been invaluable. This is something I'm going to look into further for myself, so... I'm glad I brought you on the show here. So well, thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. So thank you ever so much for your time today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and we certainly extend the offer to be of any help to your listeners. There is no cost at all to reach out to us. Our intent and our hope is to be able to serve. And so the first thing we do is I to talk to you, identify what the concerns are, and first of all, determine whether or not we can be of help. So there's no charge at all for talking to us or exploring with us as far as what can be accomplished for them. Great. That's awesome. Well, Bruce, thanks once again. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.